Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Today we're going to be talking about free will. And uh, it's going to be interesting talk about free will in a Presbyterian church. So uh, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get going. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you uh, because you have delivered to us your um, interpretation of the world through your word. Lord, we ask for wisdom as we search out your word for answers. Help us to understand. Help us to be clear and know where to make our distinctions. And Lord, most importantly, help it to affect our hearts. And Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so before you, you have a Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 9. Of free will. Um, and so let's uh, read the first point there, and then we will go into uh, some deep philosophical talk at uh, 8.30 in the morning. So this is what it says. Article 1. God hath endued the will of man with that natural liberty or freedom that it is neither forced nor by the absolute necessity of nature determined to good or evil. Now, first of all, we have to understand a couple things. Number one, this is speaking of Adam before the fall. This is not man's current state. It gets into man's current state uh, I think in Article 3. But in Article 1, it is just talking about Adam. When he, Adam and Eve, when they were created before the fall, what was, their, what was the state of their will? And the state of their will was this idea that it was free, that God made their will free. Um... It wasn't forced, nor by necessity of nature, determined towards good or evil. There was some kind of sense that it was, uh, there was choice involved without an overbearing nature. Okay. So first, let me say that we probably can't really understand what this is. Um, like most theology, we can, we can describe something, but it doesn't mean we really understand the content of what we're describing. So let me give you a couple analogies that will help us a little bit. So uh, the, the reason why this is a difficult chapter isn't because the chapter isn't well written. It's a difficult chapter because we live in America in 2022. And living in America in 2022, we have made assumptions about our will that have been borrowed by pagans who write philosophy. We may not even know who they are, 
but we have adopted much of their philosophy. If I were to say William James, how many in here know who William James is? Okay, you've heard the name. I see one hand in the back. All right. Did you know that even though most of us don't know who William James is, when I talk about free will, most of us are thinking like William James. So William James had this idea that our will must be free in this sense today, where we are not uh, by nature determined to good or evil, and that uh, we are not, our will is not forced, it is free, and it's independently free, and the reason why we know this is because it feels that way. And because it feels that way, it must be that way, because when we make a choice, at the moment of choice, we could have chosen otherwise. And that is William James, and that is 99% of Americans when they think of free will. <clears throat> For instance, um, uh, Kyle, you chose to wear a suit jacket this morning. Isn't it true that you could have chosen otherwise? I mean, when you looked at your closet, you could have said, nah, not today, it's going to be 90 degrees, forget it. But at the moment of choice, you chose the suit jacket, right? So for William James, he would say, Kyle had the freedom to choose otherwise. Because it felt that way. Yeah, so that's where it gets a little sticky. How do we know he really was free to choose otherwise? Well, we can't go back in time. Uh, history is determined. Um, you can't change it. It happened, and there's no way to have any kind of test to see if he could have chosen otherwise. So it just comes down to whether you felt that way at the moment. Yes. Yes. So yeah, he could have come in any way at all, but the constraints of our of our culture, the constraints of his personal uh, desire to um, to be modest, and all these things constrain us. Now, William James would say that's true, but in the end, William James would say, "But your freedom says you could have chosen otherwise." The reason I'm bringing this up is because this is the way most people think about free will, and it's false. We shouldn't listen to William James, although I think he claims some kind of religious background. Um, I don't believe him. Okay, so. Uh, the problem that we have with free will, and this is, something, this is uh, the second analogy I want to try and help you with, is this. Uh, in the 20th century, we were able to send someone out into space and look back at the Earth. Do you know how important of a moment that was? I mean, up until then, and up until we were able to take pictures of our, 
of our earth, uh, going back and going out and looking back, you know, we had a lot of theories about the earth and what it looked like and all that sort of stuff, but we were able to do that only from what we knew being on it. Does that make sense? So we were on the earth, able to make some kind of judgments. Uh, you know, we know that there were some people in some boats that circumnavigated the earth, and uh, what, Magellan or whatnot? My, <laughs> my elementary height, uh, yeah. So, uh, so we knew that it must have been some kind of round. It could have been oval, uh, I guess. Uh, but we had ideas. It wasn't until we, were, we distanced ourselves from the earth, turned around and looked back at it, that we were truly able to understand uh, a lot about it. Um, there was a man named Archimedes who said he could move the earth if he had a uh, lever long enough. And, uh, and this is a little bit of cheating on the Greek, but uh, we say, and a place to stand. Uh, it's not clear if he really said that, but it was assumed. <laughs> and so a lot of times when you see Archimedes being quoted, says, give me a lever long enough and a place to stand and I can move the earth. He needs a place to stand. Some place apart from the earth, looking back on it to be able to move it. So the philosophers at one point decided that this is a concept they can use to understand things. They call it the Archimedean point. That if I could stand back away from something, I can judge it in a way that's what we call objective. So can I be objective about something? So let's say that... Uh, Let's say Zeke and Anna are having a big fight. I mean, they are just very upset at each other. They're angry. Um, and we know it's probably Anna's fault. But, uh, but they're upset. And they want someone to uh, help them uh, solve the problem. And so they call upon me. Why? Because I'm not part of their family. Uh, I'm distanced from the situation. So I'm someone that can stand back from the situation and judge it, what we would call objectively. So this is what I call the false notion or the fallacy of the Archimedean point. Is it possible for a human to stand back and judge anything with the kind of objectivity that we're thinking about, that I can really stand back and look at something and make a judgment that is truly what we would call objective. So where does uh, Archimedes stand when he tries to move the earth? Um, this is the big question. So the question is to you. When you try to be objective about something, and you stand back and try to make a judgment, can you truly make an objective judgment? This is where most Americans would say, yes, I can be objective. And this is the problem. We have made ourselves uh, in some kind of way where we think we could stand back and have the tools necessary to make a judgment 
about anything, including God. So when, um, so when we talk about free will, most people are thinking about this objective status where they can move back away from everything and make a judgment. This is the Archimedean point. The problem with this is that God, even when he made Adam, made Adam in a particular way. So what we have to be really careful about is that we don't take our American 21st century ideas and put them into the Westminster Confession of Faith. So did Adam have the objectivity that we think of as Americans when we think of free will? When he is looking at the tree and God says, don't eat of that tree, is Adam really objective where he can push himself back into this place where he can think and judge God, judge the tree, judge Eve, and make an objective judgment. Is everyone following what I'm saying? Does this sound too philosophical for the morning? Well, it's, it's unclear whether he's even thinking thoughts of will anyway, because we, we brought that along in the, in the um, ancient, and especially in the medieval times, we really got into this idea of what my will is. Um, but it comes down to this. When Adam is making a decision, is he making it in a way where he is truly objective? And my answer is no. He is not objective. Not in the way that we think, especially when we think in terms of science, where we think we're making objective ideas and there's nothing objective going on. What we call this, and this is a term that's good for you to know, even as people that aren't thinking these thoughts throughout the week, a good term for you to know is something called autonomous free will. What does autonomous free will mean? Autonomous, having autonomy, means you are able to uh, distance yourself from the world in a way that makes you an island, right? Someone that is able to have all the tools you need to look back and make judgments, and those judgments are objective. Autonomy means that you don't have any needs. In other words, autonomy would be uh, Archimedes standing on nothing as he moves the world because he doesn't need anything. That's autonomous, right? So when we talk about autonomous free will, and this is, and I know this is, uh, I'm getting into all this stuff, but I need to do it because right as we're reading this first piece here, we're automatically thinking the wrong thoughts. And I want to make sure we rid ourselves of the wrong thoughts before we even move forward anymore. 
And so the thing we cannot be thinking is that Adam had autonomous free will or that he was able to be objective. Could Adam think in any other way than human thinking? Let me ask you this. What is human thinking dependent upon? Dependent upon God to set the rules. What else? Finite. Okay, good. What was that? Biology, right? So Adam had a brain. And we use our brain, right? If there's a problem with our brain, we're not able to use it well. And so biology has a lot of uh, factoring in our thinking. What else is dependent on our thinking? Emotions, good. Relationships. Yeah, we learned uh, a little while ago everything is covenantal in reality. And therefore, for Adam to understand anything, he has to think in terms of relationship. What is his relationship to the earth itself? What does the Bible say Adam's relationship to the earth itself was? He was supposed to, yeah, he was supposed to manage it, subdue it, rule over it. What about his relationship to God? What was that relationship? Love and obey. Yeah, I like that. What I'm getting at here is for Adam to even begin thinking, he has all these different barriers that he has to think within. He can't think outside that, those barriers. So he's thinking in terms of living in a garden, thinking in terms of his relationship to God and the garden itself, his relationship to Eve, his relationship to the animals, and all these things are based on him being the subduer and the ruler of the earth, and he can't think outside of that. Okay? So when we say free will, he can't jump outside of all of those relationships and make decisions, because then decisions don't make sense anymore. The only way to make a decision is within the context of his relationship between God and him, God and his, or him and his wife, him and the earth. And there's nothing outside of that for him to think. In other words, he was within the earth, he would, there was no way for him to get into space and look back on the earth. Is everyone following that little analogy? So I'm not saying that his his will was not free, but it wasn't free in the way that we think of it after the Enlightenment. Okay? So God hath endued the will of man, speaking of Adam and Eve, with that natural freedom. Okay? That isn't forced one way or the other, nor by absolute necessity of nature. In other words, his nature wasn't that he could never think outside of good, good choices. He could think of outside of good choices. He could make bad choices. Okay? This is the kind of freedom they're talking about. 
Adam was able to make bad choices even though he was made good. It doesn't mean Adam was objective. We're going to get to that idea in just a minute that actually the idea of him thinking he can think objectively is what led to the fall. So number two. So number one is telling us that man, even though he was made good, he did have the freedom to even do evil. Man, in his state of innocency, had freedom and power to will and do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet mutably. What does mutable mean? It's changeable. He could change. So even though he was made good and he was able to do things that are good and well-pleasing to God, he had a mutable, uh, if I can put it this way, will. His will could change so that he might fall from the goodness. I'll put it that way. And that's pretty self-explanatory. Does anyone have any questions over that one? Because we're about to get to the more difficult one. Number three, man, by his fall into the state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability to will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation, so as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to, or to, listen carefully, prepare himself to be converted. Okay. What was Satan's promise to Eve? Let's look at Genesis chapter 1. Remember, we live in a covenantal reality um, where... People make covenants all the time. Satan loves to make covenants and then break them. Sometimes we call these promises. So let's look at Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? So was this crafty creature dumb? I mean, didn't he know that God did not say you can't eat of any of the trees? Why did he start that way? Yeah. He's being, yeah, he's being subtle. He's starting out with uh, an idea that seems crazy. Did God tell you not to eat of any of these trees? He says, no, just that tree. Now, the logic that I want you to see is this. Is it strange that God would say, don't eat of any of the trees? Well, yeah, that would be, that would be uh, unreasonable for God to make all these trees with fruit and then say, don't eat any of them. That would be unreasonable. 
Here's the logic that he's trying to get her to. Isn't it also unreasonable just to say one of those trees you can't eat? If you can eat all the trees, then isn't it also unreasonable to not be able to eat one of the trees? That's the logic he's getting her to. These are the subtle ways you start uh, moving with someone's will. You begin with whether or not the commandment is unreasonable. When something becomes unreasonable, our will begins to shift. Uh, if you remember one of, our, one of the things I talked about in our men and family talks was to, when you are fighting with your spouse, not to resort to swearing out of anger. One of the reasons I told you that is because what happens is that leads to an idea that we have just moved from a reasonable discussion to an unreasonable discussion, and there are no more rules. And so the gloves come off, and you begin talking to each other in terrible ways. The serpent is doing the same thing. Once he can convince Eve that this is a, an unreasonable thing, it's unreasonable for him to say, don't eat of any of the trees. And if that's true, then it's unreasonable for him to say, one of the trees you can't eat. If it's unreasonable, then the gloves come off. She feels that she no longer has to hold her will back from what she wants, because if God's being unreasonable, then she doesn't have to obey. And so she corrects him and says, from the fruit of the trees uh, of the garden we may eat, but the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not die. You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, objective, or knowing good and evil. The promise here is that you are trapped on the earth, and you can only uh, go horizontal. But if you eat from that tree, you can go vertical, look back, and make judgments like God. You can be objective. You can be like God who has the knowledge to be able to push everything out and make objective judgments with your good and evil ideas. Okay. And from that, now we have an unfair God who is trying to keep Eve from being too much like him, and he's unreasonable, and therefore her will shifted. And uh, Adam's will shifted as he was either not present because he was not, uh, he was not interested in defending his wife or he was there the whole time and still not interested in defending his wife. He watched as she ate and she handed it to him and he ate. So what we have is now a fall. 
Okay? The temptation was you can be objective like God and make judgments in, ob in full, true objectivity. What the Enlightenment promised humans, that you can be objective. All you have to do is follow Francis Bacon and keep good, keep good records of your tests and make sure that you are uh, doing the same test over and over, and if it comes out the right way, then your model is working great, and now you are an objective person. But it doesn't work that way. Even humans began to see this, and we entered into what was called the postmodern era, where people said, if the Enlightenment failed, then there is no truth. Um, we now live beyond the postmodern era where we're in multiverse philosophy where your ideas are fine within your universe and my ideas are fine in my universe and therefore we must make uh, arrangements to live together. Okay. So if man fell into, into a state of sin where he wholly lost all ability to will to any spiritual good according to salvation. What does that mean about our will after the fall? Before the fall, we had this ability, even though we were made good, to have our will change and will evil. But now that our parents have willed evil, we all are born with a kind of will that has lost all ability for any spiritual good towards salvation. What, what does that mean? Kyle, what do you think that means? How would you explain that to somebody? All right, number three, uh, the third time. What does it mean for man to lose all ability to will something spiritual unto salvation? What does that mean? Okay, we can no longer choose God because choosing involves the what? The will. And if our will has lost all ability to any spiritual good toward our salvation, this is just toward our salvation, not just our salvation that we can choose God for salvation, but we would do anything, look what it says, to prepare ourselves for that salvation. <clears throat> so I was... Uh, so I was... Uh, I, I did a paper for, the sem for a seminary um, at the Bob Jones Seminary, and I did a paper on how is it possible for a Christian to talk to an unbeliever, uh, because uh, an unbeliever has a completely different way of thinking because their thinking is based on suppression of the truth. Christians are, their thinking is based on embracing the truth through Christ. So how is it that we can really have a conversation with an unbeliever? That was my question. So I had this paper on how, you know, it's possible through, of course, as you would guess, Cornelius Van Til. 
And then I had someone, then there was a, a professor that came up and challenged a part of the paper. And his challenge was this. He said, my wife, or not my wife, my mother, he said, had a glass of whiskey in one hand and a cigarette in the other hand, and she was looking at the Bible, trying to figure it out. It was before she was saved, but she just was trying to figure it out. He says, in your scheme, it seems that you're saying there's no preparation for salvation. There's nothing people can do in preparing themselves for salvation, but I can, I know I have this image of my own mother sitting there with whiskey and a cigarette, looking at the Bible, trying to figure it out because something in her is desiring to know about this. So how would, you know, how would you answer this? This doesn't seem like she is cut off from truth that she's suppressing it. It seems like she's getting ready to accept it. There's a preparation going on. So I had to answer back to that. What is, what is that? Um, and it comes down to this. Uh, is she willing herself to open that Bible and figure things out? Do we even know what happens when people open a Bible to try and figure things out when they don't believe? Are they trying to comfort themselves in their unbelief, trying to find something in the Bible that will allow that comfort to come? Are they looking at the Bible and wanting to understand it in a way that will allow them to be okay uh, in the way they want to be okay? In other words, just because we have this desire to comfort ourselves, does that really, is that really are we preparing ourselves for salvation? Or is God going to use that to cut us more deeply and relieve us with the power of the Holy Spirit? In salvation. See, the assumption is this. I'm not saved until, um, and this probably wasn't his assumption. He's much more reformed than, than a lot of people are. Uh, but a lot of people's assumption in salvation is, I have to prepare myself, prepare myself for the magic prayer, right? The magic prayer where I ask Jesus and I say, hey, you're not in my heart yet, but can you come in my heart? And now you're in my heart. Instead, what we, what we see all throughout Scripture is God's action on man changing his will because he changed his heart, and that fruit is him calling out to God saying, forgive me. And if you look at the Puritans, you don't see people concerned about a prayer of asking Jesus into their heart. You see Puritans concerned about whether or not people are repenting to see the fruit of what God has done in their heart. So with these ideas, um, when we think about will, what it really is, how it, how it started out with Adam, what it looks like now, isn't it true that there are people that have done really nice things um, that have a will against God? I mean, isn't it true that even Oprah Winfrey uh, gave a bunch of money for people to have a house uh, who would never be able to afford a house, and she bought houses for people? She, uh, in Africa, she 
bought a bunch of land and a building uh, so that young ladies who otherwise wouldn't be educated could be educated. Isn't she good? Isn't this good? Doesn't, isn't some of her will good if that's what she wants for other people? What are, what are our thoughts? <laughs> what was that? Okay. That's a good, uh, a good difference. It comes down to, uh, help me with your name again, was it? Clarissa. Clarissa. How am I going to remember that? <laughs> Clarissa. I always have to have some kind of thing that will always help me remember it. Clarissa. All right. So Clarissa came, uh, had the answer very quickly, which is nice because we're running out of time. Uh, but her answer is this, and this is something that we, even as Christians, still can't wrap our head around as to what good is. You'll notice throughout the way these guys wrote this, the Westminster Divines uh, were brilliant in how they wrote this. They're talking about how the will is prone to pleasing God, and they call that good. And they, they talk about holy loss its ability to any spiritual good. And what's good? It involves salvation in Christ. And everything good involves God. The other answer I gave this professor who's, who is in a way questioning how... Um, how depraved are we really? And his, his, his argument was kind of, well, my mom wasn't as depraved in her sin as other people were because my mom's sitting there with a, with a glass of, of uh, whiskey in her hand and a cigarette, but she's looking at the Bible. Other people are out murdering and raping, and that's not what his mom is about. And that's true. And like I've said before uh, many times in, in Sunday school, what is the total when we say someone's totally depraved? What's the total part in Romans chapter 1? What led to God giving man over to their, to their desires so that the fruit of their total depravity would come out in the raping, killing, murdering, homosexuality, and all those things, what was the, the total part? Yes, not honoring or giving God thanks. Oprah Winfrey, whatever she calls God, is not the God of Scripture. She believes in some kind of being that is that follows her direction of what good is, and that being is Oprah Winfrey. That's her God. And if God ever does anything Oprah Winfrey would not do, then she won't believe in him. And so she doesn't. And so what we have are people that are trying to do acts that mimic, uh, you know, good things, but they're trying to do it in a way without giving God thanks. And in that case, it's still not a good act. Your good deeds are like filthy rags to God. 
filthy rags. Now there's something, there's a creational norm about wanting to do good things for people, and that creational norm is God's grace on this earth. That even when the fall, there's still people that have creational norms, things that are normal for the way God created people, right? Matthew McConaughey, fairly manly guy, heterosexual, those are creational norms, not a Christian, far from a Christian, okay? And that's God's grace, even for those who have nothing but hell to look forward to. So lastly, almost lastly, uh, when God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he frees him from the natural bondage under sin and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and do that which is spiritually good. Yet so, that by reason of his remaining corruption, he doth not perfectly, nor only will that which is good, but doth also will that which is evil. In other words, Adam, the first man, was given a freedom that even though he was created good, had the freedom to choose evil. After the fall, when we are united with Christ, even though we were born evil, in our union with Christ, we now have the ability to will good. We won't always will good, but we have the ability now. That's what freedom is. Freedom is not objectivity where you step away from good and evil and you can make a decision between the two. True freedom is finally having the ability to will what is good when you had the ability only to will what was evil before. What Luther called bondage of the will before Christ becomes freedom in Christ because now you have the ability to choose good. We still have corruption within us until Christ comes back or until we die. But we still have that freedom in Christ. And number five, the will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to good alone in the state of glory only. This would uh, be the problem. Uh, the Methodists would not like this last statement. Uh, in the Methodist movement, you have the ability to become perfectly good here on earth. Uh, the way they get around people still sinning is that they believe it's not a sin if you sin and you're unaware that it's a sin. So you can still be perfect. And in your sin, if you don't know it's a sin, then it's not really a sin for you until you're made aware of that sin. This is why Methodists are so good in politics. <laughs> Sorry, no offense to anyone. Okay. No one got that joke? Nobody? Or it just wasn't funny? All right. That's fine. In other words, the ability to be perfect uh, takes the uh, false notions of politics to make it work. No one can do it. 
because only through Christ you have freedom to do good and you will never be able to be perfectly good until Christ comes again or you are in glory. That's the only choice you really get. Okay. Do we have any questions with our last minute about the will? Did I successfully make it so confusing that you have nothing to ask? <laughs> or was... Yes. My elevator pitch answer is, if you mean the philosophers, uh, no, we don't have free will. If you mean scripture, absolutely. <laughs> even when even unbelievers have the freedom to do what they will desire to do, which is always evil. Uh, because David Hume, at least, got got this part right. Uh, we are a slave to our desires. There's no way to get around it. Even scripture supports that when it says that delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires you're supposed to have so that you will do the right thing. Um, and so that that's another thing that makes uh, Buddhism so abhorrent. Uh, the, the chief goal of Buddhism is to, to get rid of all desire, which would take a strong desire to do that, by the way. <laughs> they obviously, uh, that's why Buddhism is hard to, you know, it's hard to make it in the 21st century. The, the people start asking those kind of questions. <laughs> yeah. Any other questions? Because this is a big thing at Bob Jones University. I mean, my kids who know I'm Reformed always ask that question. So do you believe in free will, Dr. Rathman? I said, as the Bible describes, absolutely. <laughs> as uh, William James and others, not so much. And then it leads to a discussion because they have no idea who I'm talking about. <laughs> Good. Any other questions? Well, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are humbled by uh, the means that you have used uh, to help us understand your word. And Lord, you have used the Holy Spirit, you have used your servants uh, in the flesh, and we stand humbled uh, that you are gracious enough to use means that uh, we don't even understand. Um, Lord, we thank you uh, for your goodness to us. We thank you even for the means of your grace today and your use of our pastor to communicate that grace to us through your word. Lord, we pray that our hearts would bow before your word today, your word to us. Lord, give uh, Andrew power and strength and boldness to speak what you have prepared him to speak. And Lord, give us humility as we listen. And Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.